Welcome to Bible Society's She Too series, which is looking at some of the most difficult passages to be found in the Bible. The so-called texts of terror are stories about the abuse of women, so they're not the kind of stories you generally hear read in church on a Sunday morning. But perhaps in the light of the Me Too movement, we should be reading them, thereby giving voice to women whose experiences have gone unheard. My contributors don't always take the same academic approach, and they come from a range of faith and non-faith perspectives. Bible Society is not aligned to any single denomination and doesn't necessarily endorse every position taken in these podcasts. But they are offered to help listeners engage with themes and parts of the Bible that are too important to ignore. I'm Rosie Dawson, a journalist and theologian, and today's story is that of Jephthah's daughter, which is found halfway through the Book of Judges. I discussed it with the author and broadcaster Rabbi Shoshana Boyd-Gelfand, and she began by telling me how she approaches the text. I bring a, a Jewish read of the text, and a Jewish read is very much that the, the Hebrew language is a, is a terse, compact language. Um, it doesn't have a lot of detail in it. It doesn't tell you about the emotional lives of the characters. Now, I see that as an invitation to read into it. And in fact, Jewish tradition does that with something called Midrash. And we're allowed to read into the text, and we're allowed to make all sorts of suppositions about what's going on internally in these characters. So does that mean there's no one right way of reading a text? That's exactly right. As long as you can read the story from the beginning to the end without, I would say, doing violence to the actual text, that is a legitimate read of the story. And it may be in absolute opposition to another legitimate read of the story. And Judaism would um, embrace that contradiction as a way of finding all of the richness and the messages that are there in the text. And where's God then in that reading? Judaism talks about God as having 70 faces and this notion that revelation is something so beyond human comprehension that each of us gets a little piece of it And only by sharing differing interpretations can we even approximate what God might have meant by this story. Okay, so let's tell the story. The story comes in Judges 11, and the first mention of Jephthah that we come across, we're told that he is um, a Gileadite and a mighty warrior. Judges really refers to these non-hereditary tribal leaders. And that's the period of time we're at. We're we're post-Exodus, so we've left Egypt, we're wandering around in the land of Canaan, but we haven't yet created a monarchy. So it's a little bit chaotic, and Jephthah is one of those tribal leaders. Some of the judges were good, but most of them actually were fairly good warriors, not always the most capable or moral leaders. So we're talking about the sort of loose confederation of the tribes of Israel, basically. That's right. You had the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of them had their um, designated area of land. And, um, and then there were the, the surrounding people, the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Philistines. And there was a lot of violence, a lot of conflict. Um, and these tribes each functioned as quasi-independent entities. And Jephthah is quite a successful warrior. 
and he's about to face the Ammonites and he's a bit daunted perhaps by this and so he makes a vow to God. Tell yeah. me about that. Well he's daunted and he should be. They are a formidable foe and so he does something looks like quite unthinkingly. He says whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now it is a bizarre formulation of an oath. What was he expecting to come out his door? You can't tell whether he thought it was going to be an animal. Horrors! Did he actually think it was going to be a person? That's anathema to the biblical consciousness. And like I said, the biblical text doesn't tell us what his inner thinking was other than, I need to win and I need God's help if I'm going to win. I know I can't do this on my own. But of course what did come out of the house was his daughter. And you get this picture in your head of a young woman coming out the door to greet her father as he returns. And here he is. She runs out the door and you can just picture his face at that moment. And the realization that he has of this beautiful young woman coming towards him and that he has now vowed to sacrifice her? Yikes. There's a similar story in the Greek myth, isn't there? Do we know if it's contemporary to this? I don't know about the timing because uh, one of the challenges with biblical texts is that they were an oral tradition. So when the stories started versus when they were written down, very difficult to date these stories. But the, the Greek myth is, is of Iphigenia, um, who is the daughter of Agamemnon. And we know that uh, there's various tellings of this story, some of which Iphigenia is actually sacrificed to Artemis and somewhere she's not and she just sort of becomes a servant to her. There are lots of different ways of picking it up, but this does seem to be a trope in ancient literature of you know the innocent maiden and the, I don't know, not stupid, but perhaps um, unthinking father who's in a position of power and doesn't realize the tragedy that's about to unfold with his words. So Jephthah is absolutely devastated. Tell me what happens next. He says, I cannot take back my vow. And that becomes a real question in Jewish interpretation. Why not? And that's where I think that the only saving grace of this story comes out for me because this, this young woman who, like you said, doesn't have a name, she says, okay, I understand, I accept this. Two months. I want two months to go up to the mountains and mourn. She says, and weep for, I don't know how to translate it, my virginity, my maidenhood. I, again, we'd have to interpret what does she mean by that. But she asks for two months to go with her girlfriends up to the mountains. Um, that's what they do. And the story, or at least this part of the story, ends by saying that Jephthah did with her according to his vow that he had made. So you do get the sense that this sacrifice was consummated. And then we're told that Israelite maidens remember her for four days every year in a, in a ritual. So what, what do we make of the story? Do we know how this 
story would have been received when it was heard or read, how would how would people, the original audience have, have heard it, have understood it? They would have heard it in absolute horror. The the Bible is so clearly a um, a polemic against child sacrifice. Right? The the worst curse you could have is um, you know the the curse against the the people who sacrificed their children to the god Molech, right? This is absolutely forbidden. And they would have read it as a tragedy. And I would say a tragedy both for the, the child, the innocent child, but also for the father. Because what you have here is a father who whose only child is now gone, and therefore there is no continuation of his line at all. And in biblical language, that's what death is. The worst thing that could happen was for you to die without continuing and having children and and somehow carrying your values to the next generation. Is this to be read in tandem with the story of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac? Well, there's a lot of contrast there, I would say. The story of Abraham is God instructing Abraham as a test and God then saying no need to carry it through. This is a story where where is God in this yeah. story, right? Jephthah comes up with this idea of I'll make an oath. Jephthah's the one who carries it through. Nobody stays his hand. You also have I mean, besides the contrast of it being a male child or a female child, a named child and an unnamed child, something I think interesting here of a, what's the relationship between this parent and child? We know that with Abraham and Isaac, Abraham loves Isaac. There's a, an emotional connection there. Even though I imagine, I painted you a very nice picture of a, a, a daughter running out to greet her beloved father. We're not told that. He's devastated, though. He's devastated by having to fulfil his vow. Yes. So I imagine there was that connection there. I like to imagine there is that connection, but we don't have any explanation of their relationship. And interestingly, she's the one who severs the father-child bond by saying, I'm not going to spend my final moments on earth sitting and hugging you, Dad. I'm going off with my girlfriends. Come to that in a minute. But the, the commonality, I suppose, between Abraham and Jephthah is obedience. I mean, that's, that's the way it could be read. And I have read Christian interpreters who say, you know, well, he made a vow and you have to fulfil your vow. That is not an interpretation I've ever heard in Jewish commentaries. That's not to say they're, it's not there. I've just never heard anyone, any commentator praise Jephthah for his actions. There's always a critique. I mean, his name in Hebrew is Yiftach, which means he will open. So it's like, why did you open your mouth? That's the critique of him. Um... There's never a, a sense of, oh, what a good guy for obeying God, as opposed to Abraham, where, who, who there are those comments that say. So his daughter takes the initiative and says, I'm going off to the mountains. I mean, you could say, oh, her obedience to her father 
makes for a model daughter. But actually, as you just suggested, she's going off to the mountains with her girlfriend. So she's, she's maybe not the model daughter. And, and that's the richness of this text. We know so little about her. So I think that um, that gives us a lot of space for interpretation. You could do a feminist read of this text that says she had to work within certain constraints, but she created a two-month space and a physical space up in the mountains that was all women. And that was the price that she was able to exact from this. And not only did she create that for herself, but then somehow this became an annual ritual, an annual women's ritual where all women were released for four days a year to go and to have this space away from a patriarchal system that allowed for such horrors to happen. So that would be a, a, a very powerful feminist read of this text. Still a tragic story, but she took control of her destiny and of women's destiny in some way. What is she actually bewailing? I mean, it says one interpretation is her virginity, which is a very male way of looking at it, isn't it? Um, what, what, what else might she have been bewailing? It's an interesting word in the Hebrew. So it could be that we're referring to, you know, physically she's never had sex with anyone. But if you look at the social history of that time, what does that mean? That means that she has not moved from her father's house to her husband's house. And so who did she take with her? She took the people who still had some modicum of freedom, who hadn't been attached to another man in their life yet. And those were the ones that, um, that went up to the mountains together. I love imagining what they talked about up there. So it's a space for girls, young women, maybe between puberty and actual marriage, a sort of short time in their lives that they had some sense of freedom, perhaps? So they, they would have been under their father's control, and yet she has given them a space where they're not. Very soon after, they would then marry and be head of their household in a maternal role. So there is this very, very small window that I think perhaps we don't appreciate now because we have so much more space between physical maturity and possibly leaving our parents' house. But back then it would have been a very small window indeed. Is there any record anywhere in Jewish history which points to a, a ritual like this? I imagine that if women's writings had been produced and maintained over these thousands of years, we would have had a record of what happened there. So I, I think, and scholars also think, that there was some sort of women's ritual that must have happened, but we have no idea what it was. So a reading of it as undermining patriarchy in some way. Are you asking me if that was the intention of the text, or is that my read of the text? That's your read, surely. <laughs> <laughs> it is my attempt at a redemptive read of this text. When I read it, I have two choices. I can sit and weep at what a horrific text it is, or I can sit and weep and then try and find some redemptive moment. And I really do find it here. 
You know how you always play those games with people you want to invite for dinner and have an hour with them? I want to meet the daughter of Jephthah. What gave her the chutzpah? There's a good Jewish word for you, the chutzpah, to say, fine, I can't fight you on this, but I'm going to do this my way. It is a terrible, terrible story, but you have made it a redemptive one for, for me. So Shoshana, thank you very much indeed.